This episode of Practice Disrupted is brought to you by Monograph, ArcIT, and NCARB. You'll hear more about them later in the show. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry of architecture is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome to Practice Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hey, Evelyn. Hey, Disruptors. This week, we're excited to offer another crossover episode with our friends at SheBuilds Podcast. SheBuilds is part of Gable Media and has produced over 40 episodes of content featuring women in the design and construction industry. SheBuilds Podcast features the seldom told stories of women who build, women whose worth is not taught in schools, but who have shaped the industries of architecture, construction, and development over the last century. The podcast was started by three friends, Nordri Rivas, Jessica Rogers, and Elizabeth or Lizzie Rar, who, after graduating from architecture school, together wanted to fill in the gaps in their education and share those with others. Every story they tell on their show features a woman who is disrupting their chosen profession simply by showing up and doing the work. Today, they are going to share some of those stories with us through the lens of Practice Disrupted. We have a special spot in our hearts for these podcasters. To celebrate the amazing work that they're doing, we thought it would be fun to team up for another crossover episode. And today, we're going to offer something a little different, a, a bit of a remix of pairing themes between our show and the way that she builds tell stories. So without further ado, I present to you the special She Builds Practice Disrupted podcast crossover in three acts. Yeah! 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 <laughs> All right, here we go. Act one, identity and culture. Hi, Nurjuri. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a big fan of your show, so I'm kind of fangirling right now. You don't have to keep that. <laughs> well, we are thrilled to have you and to celebrate all the research and love you've done to put into telling these amazing stories. I can't wait to hear what you've organized today. And I feel like we're about to get schooled on some architectural herstory. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for inviting me to share this story with y'all. Actually, one of the things that I really, really like about your show is out of all the subjects you cover, my favorite one is about culture and identity. I think it's really important for society and as architects to talk about those stories because we have a responsibility to reflect the identity and culture of a place in the built environment. So that's why I really like that subject. Yeah, we agree. We love culture topics, too. <laughs> of course you do. That's why you do it. <laughs> okay, so. Sassy back talk now. <laughs> Inevitable. You told me to be me. <laughs> On Sheba's podcast, we've shared the stories of a number of ladies that had identity and culture as the driving force of their work. Ladies like Lena Bobardi, Mary Elizabeth Jane Coulter, Dora God. Minet De Silva, and Jane Drew. Today, I want to focus on the last two on that list, Minet De Silva and Jane Drew. Let me start with Jane Drew. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's ready. hear it. Okay. Let's the time, March 24th, 
1911. The place, England. Jane Drew was born. She graduated from the AA Architecture School in 1934. At the time, there were not a lot of ladies in the field of architecture. Firms would flat out tell her, sorry, we don't hire women. Or more like, sorry, we don't hire women. Like, <laughs> this was a valid reason for not hiring someone. Like, can you believe it? Did that ever happen to y'all? The experience motivated Jane to start her very own firm. She started it in 1934, and she called it Jane B. Drew. Now, guess what kind of jobs she got hired to do when she started? Just guess. Interiors. Well, chairs? Furniture? No, I'm just saying interior. Like, like, uh, right? when you, like interiors. The, the interior decorator? Interior design. Well, That's a really good guess. I'm going to guess admin. Well, those are really good guesses. Kudos to you. But she actually got a lot of jobs doing kitchens and she decided that she was going to do the best kitchens ever. And she researched the heck out of those kitchens. She found out that the average height of women in England had gone up. So she raised the counter heights in her designs and she studied the motions and activities of women in the kitchen. And she suggested placing the laundry room near the kitchen to raise efficiency. So her client basically told her that nobody cares about improving efficiency for women and to please don't waste their time with silly ideas. And I think that the joke's on them because nowadays, I mean, where is the laundry? It's pretty standard. It's near the kitchen. Pretty genius. Right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mine's definitely near the kitchen. And my, well, my house is built in 1960s. So there you go. Mine too. I live in an apartment and it's like a little closet right next to the kitchen. It's very convenient. Jane thought so too. And she wrote a book about it. She called it Kitchen Planning, a brochure of new plans and suggestions for labor-saving kitchens. So I'm not saying that we have to thank Jane, but maybe. Eventually, Jane graduated for kitchens. Thank goodness. From 1944 to 1946, she was the assistant town planning advisor to the resident minister for the British colonies in Africa. Listen to this. She got paid a hundred pounds less than everyone else just because she was a woman. That's mm. crazy. Can you imagine? I mean, I know I hear stories, even the equity by design survey, like it, it it's still happening, but it's hard. It's hard to know that it was, it's always been that way. Yeah. I think it's hard to know that it was so blatant. Like today, yeah. it's kind of hush hush. We know it's happening. In that time, it was so normal. They would flat out tell her that's what it was. Yeah, or like expected. Like, yeah. like she should be just so happy that she gets She has a job. Exactly, right. that she's even there. Well, the person that was getting paid 100 pounds less realized that the architects in the office were just duplicating the designs that they did in England, in Africa. And Jane was like, wait a minute, we're in Africa. I mean, everything is different. The climate, the people, the culture. So she made it a point to learn a bit about the local language and try her best to communicate with the people that she was serving and become involved and try to understand their culture and their needs so that she could integrate that into her designs. Seems obvious, but later on, Jane and her husband, Max Fry, 
formed the firm Fry, Drew, and Partners, focusing on large-scale planning for tropical countries. And they wrote books about what is today known as regional modernism, integrating the lessons of the modernist movement with the needs of a specific region. Because what worked in England and Paris was not exactly the same as what would work in Ghana and Nigeria. Jane's firm hired local craftsmen and artisans to make sure they integrated local aesthetics and culture in their buildings and town designs. Jane became so well-known and so legit that the Indian Prime Minister of India, Prime Minister Nehru, invited her to lead the design of a new city, Chandigarh. Yet, she was so busy to run that project that she recommended a little known architect, Le Corbusier. <laughs> Have you heard of this guy? <laughs> oh, man. What a nice referral. <laughs> I'm sure he appreciated it. <laughs> right. yeah, he needed the money, I'm sure. Actually, maybe he did. But did you guys, do you remember this project from school? I actually had to look this one up and uh, yeah, I definitely remember looking at this one, but gosh, wow, what an opportunity that she passed off. Exactly. I remember like we studied this to death in school. So much, so much. the only person that they ever mentioned was Le Corbusier. And it was like a huge shock to me to know that if she hadn't recommended him, like this project probably wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for her. I wonder how many other projects out there, like, <laughs> you know, it just makes you, it just makes you wonder. So exactly. many. So many. You can listen to our show. <laughs> Get a clue. Just as a side note, I've been thinking about like star architects and how we give them so much credit and they're not alone. Like Corbusier mm -hmm. didn't design a whole freaking city by his by himself there was like this huge team of people behind him that we never ever talk about like he was brilliant on his own when he really wasn't I mean he was brilliant but there yeah. were a lot of people it's a team <laughs> it takes a it team takes exactly. you know I've, I've always wanted was like the IMBD version of yes like buildings mm -hmm. like who was who everyone who worked on the project yeah and, yeah could you imagine drafter contractor but like not just like the name of the firm but like break it down like mm -hmm. credits and all in a the movie. team members and then yeah. like exactly. no like people maybe people would begin to understand the complexity of the teams that go into producing these buildings mm -hmm. too absolutely that's very true how do we hmm. get that happening evelyn i don't know what <laughs> I'm okay let's talk about that after this okay so back to jane so even though Jane wasn't running the project, Mr. Corbusier was, she did a lot of work and not just her, her husband, Max, Pierre Generet, and a large team of Indian architects for years worked on this project. But like we've been saying, only the Corbusier gets to be the rock star, whatever. Jane was still a rock star, honestly. Like she has this large body of work all over Nigeria, Ghana, the UK, India. I mean, you could do a deep dive, get some wine, spend hours on YouTube, looking at videos and pictures of all her projects and her work. Or you could also listen to episode seven of She Builds Podcasts, just to get a little start. 
Yeah, <laughs> highly recommended. We will list more details in the show notes on how to catch up with that episode. But I think you're right. I think her identity as a woman attempting to practice architecture at a time that it was so rare that they basically wouldn't hire her and then paid her less. It's just amazing. And and due to the social norms of the time, it's yet she persevered and she was able to find her path into the field of architecture. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I wanted to tell her story because it's so powerful. And also she was really like she went to this new country. Every time that she stepped into the project, she tried her hardest to understand the people that were using it. And that's why she was really special to me. Okay, so I've probably taken up 20 minutes already, but I want to try to tell you one more story, if that's okay. Go for it. (laughs) Let me tell you the story of Minette de Silva. The time, February 1st, 1918. The place, Candy Ceylon, today Sri Lanka. Minette de Silva was born. She studied architecture in Bombay and worked as an apprentice for the firm Mistri and Bedouard. Later on, she moved to England and she graduated in 1948 from the AA in London, just like Jane Drew. Well, Jane Drew did it like way before her, so they didn't, they didn't see each other in school. But Minette was the first South Asian woman to become an associate member of the Royal Institute of British Architects. And she was also part of SIAM, which is like this famous, huge modernist movement group. She represented Sri Lanka and India, making her the first Asian delegate of the group. There, Minette became close friends with Jane Drew. So even though they didn't meet, they didn't meet in college, they, they did get to spend some time together. And also with our friend from the other story, Le Corbusier. Yeah, they were friends. <laughs> it's okay. He shows up a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like all the connections she made and that she was adding representation of her community to these very important groups. I find that really important. And I mean, think of all the good and important work that you do as part of the AIA and how important that is for the organization that underrepresented people join and become active. I actually want to hear from you. Like, isn't it very important that the two of you are in the AIA making change? We try our best. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard. You know, we hear architects complain about the AIA all the time. And I feel like, you know, Evelyn and I have been in the fight for a long time trying to be drivers of change and Sometimes people don't see that the AI is just made up of people trying to do things, trying to do the good work. And uh, it's not like the Wizard of Oz. There's no man behind the curtain. It's all these individual people that volunteer thousands of hours of their time to make change. I just, Minette made me think of y'all because Minette was joining these groups that didn't have a lot of women in them and didn't have a lot of South Asian representation. So it made me think of y'all and all the groups that you're a part of and the people that you represent in those groups. That's it. Yeah. If anything, I would say like it's more so of like these groups that you insert yourself in as networking opportunities to create a change in your own way. So it's not even large organizations, but just even the friend groups and the people that you surround yourself with. Because at the end of the day, you want to make the world a better place. And if it's through the lens of architecture, that's where it is. And 
by you being a part of it. You're representing a demographic that's not there. So after she graduated the AA, she went back home because it had just gained independence from Britain and it had become Sri Lanka. Imagine this opportunity as an architect to work and shape a new country. I mean, that is amazing. Mm -hmm. I was really inspired by that. But like we discussed earlier, it was really hard for women to get work. Minette had to start her own firm and then clients, engineers, contractors refused to work with her. Her first clients were family friends. Since contractors didn't want to work with her, she had to use local artisans and craftsmen to build houses. This worked for her because she believed in preserving traditional arts and crafts, building methods and materials. So it worked out. She was one of the first architects in Sri Lanka that incorporated her Western education with Sri Lanka architecture. She didn't just do one thing or the other or like some sort of a weird mix. She wanted her architecture to reflect Sri Lanka's culture and identity. Her style was part of what is known today as tropical regionalism. I just was thinking about it. Like yesterday I was talking to Lizzie. Imagine if contractors didn't want to work with you. Like if you had to go to people that don't know what they're doing, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. this is so entrepreneurial of her. Like she went out and, you know, because she recognized the value of local culture and local artisans, she was willing to pull them in and be creative about bringing people in to collaborate on projects that should reflect the community through the hands of people that live in the community. It's so interesting to me in both the first story that you told and this story that it's like the women intuitively say, we need to bring back like the human local aspect to the projects mm-hmm. right yeah I mean it's really powerful that she had the opportunity to do what she did and it was important to her like you said to carry on the Sri Lankan traditions and the materials and the culture so yeah I agree with you her projects include a lot of houses a community center and she also wrote the section on South Asian architecture in Bannister Fletcher's A History of Architecture Oh, P.S. I did have a professor trick me into buying that book. It's massive and expensive. Really? Yeah. If oh, anyone man. ever wants to see it, it's it's yeah. a thick book. <laughs> Is Minette, so she she wrote in the 18th edition. There's like more oh. than one. I don't know which uh, one you have. Is Minette I will in check there? my yes. copy. <laughs> I'll get back to you. <laughs> oh my god! When I visit you, I want to see that. Definitely. Yeah, we've talked about creating like a library of all the books that are mentioned in our show. They're expensive. They're this super- one's expensive. I had to like, and then I was like, why'd you make me buy this book? <laughs> it wasn't worth it? You it's didn't not read that it, cover it wasn't to cover? worth it. I, well, I definitely did not read it cover to cover. It's more of a reference manual. Mm-hmm. If you ever want to sell it, we can talk. <laughs> <laughs> After that, in 1996, she was awarded the gold medal by the Sri Lanka Institution of Architects. Minette dreamed of publishing an autobiography, but sadly died before finishing it. The incomplete autobiography is called The Life and Work of an Asian Woman Architect, and it was published posthumously in 1998. 
Nojuri, thank you so much for giving us an example of a South Asian architect. And, you know, I think we leaned into this a little earlier, but it, it is important to tell their stories. And I think now that we think about the conversation that we have earlier, I think it's actually more important that even other people tell their stories because I think it's it's hard for these individuals to tell their own stories mm. about why their contributions were so specifically significant because they were a person of a certain background or a person of certain color. So while, you know, obviously being a woman is just one part of an identity and being Asian is also another part of my identity, it it obviously informs how people look at me and how I look at the world. Like I need these stories to kind of almost remind me of my Asian-ness sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Like my family raised me I'm very American. They they both immigrated here to to follow the American dream. So it's it's something that I've had to come to terms of and kind of re, like realize and be more for like further educated on even as as an adult. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed the stories. I I really wanted to tell these stories today because they're similar but from different perspectives. And if you want to catch more on these women, we'll drop the details in the show notes. Okay, I'm leaving now. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) But wait, there's more. (laughs) Oh, there is? Let's take a break from this conversation to talk about our sponsor of this episode, Monograph. We're proud to partner with Monograph because they are helping to transform the practice of architecture, one design studio at a time. Tired of using dated and clunky software to manage your firm? Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your project stands today? Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With their awesome Money Gantt, you can immediately understand project performance across your entire firm portfolio. Need to adjust your projects week to week? Their new tool, Resource, allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Be proactive with Monograph. Our friends at ArcIT are helping architecture firms with their technology solutions, including fighting back against ransomware and cybersecurity attacks. They recently told us about one San Francisco-based design firm they help who had three ransomware attacks in a span of six months. Their latest hit took their generic IT provider over seven days to recover the data. Yikes. Imagine not having access to your project data for over seven days. For a mid-sized firm of 40 people, that's a lot of people not having the ability to do work on their projects. Originally, the IT provider tried to recover all of their files at once. This took them a very long time and resulted in multiple errors and restarts. Once ArcIT took over, they were able to come up with a precise recovery strategy by asking a simple question. What projects are the most critical projects your team is working on now? The team at ArcIT started the process of recovering these files and had the mid-sized firm up and running within four hours. After that, ArcIT was able to slowly recover the rest of their files. Because of ArcIT's strategic approach to cybersecurity and IT in general, this award-winning design firm has not experienced any major security threats or downtime events since. ArcIT has been their trusted partner for over three years. 
ArgIT is offering a free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment to help you determine how secure your business is. During the assessment, ArgIT will help you identify your top three highest risk areas in your business. Speaking of risks, ArcIT is also sharing some helpful tips with Practice Disrupted listeners that you can implement tomorrow to ensure your business is secure from cybersecurity threats. Their latest tip is to enable two-factor authentication for every business-related service and personal services that store sensitive or credit card information, including Netflix. Tune in next week to hear the next tip from ArcIT. To take your security solutions further, contact ArcIT at www.getarcit.com pd to set up your free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment or speak to them about custom solutions for your design firm. Hi, Disruptors, Janine here. If you're like me and have a lot of ideas about how to improve the profession of architecture, well, I've got good news for you. Here's your chance. Incarb wants to hear from you. Their ongoing analysis of practice study is your opportunity to shape the future of architecture. Share your experiences and insights from working in architecture and tell NCARB what you wish they would do better. Your feedback will help guide changes to the national experience and examination programs for architects and impact what being a licensed architect could look like. Whether you're an architect or you work with architects, NCARB wants to hear from you. Make sure your voice is heard. Contribute to the analysis of practice study today. Open a new browser tab and sign up at incarb.org slash AOP. That's incarb.org slash AOP. <laughs> We're going to move on to Act 2, Workplace Cultural Shifts. And this one's by Lizzie. So hi, Lizzie. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. So another topic that you both explore a lot on your show are workplace cultural shifts, which is obviously very relevant right now. And I was thinking about this sort of in the context of our our ladies to try and think about who to talk about. I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of people <laughs> that we could be talking about. Emily Warren Roebling came to mind, Florence Nightingale and Julia Morgan. And I think a lot of a lot of our ladies created major cultural shifts in the workplace just because they were like women in the profession were abnormal to begin with, right? So like in a way they're all doing that and disrupting in that way, but a few of them kind of really stood out to me. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Beatrix Ferrand, Louise Bethune, and then I'll give you a sneak peek of a future lady whose episode is coming out later this month. So exciting. (laughs) So, okay, let's start with Beatrix. She was born in 1872 in New York City, and her family taught her all about gardening when she was growing up, and she was always really interested in plants. So eventually, she decided to study landscape architecture, and she had an apprenticeship with Charles Sprague, who was a well-known landscape designer in the Boston area, and she saw Frederick Law Olmsted's design of the Chicago World's Fair, and that really inspired her as well. So... At the time, Columbia's School of Mines, which is the engineering school, they didn't allow women. So instead, she hired one of the faculty members to teach her on the side in drafting and surveying. And I just love how determined 
and industrious she was to kind of figure out like, okay, so what do I need to do to learn what I need to learn? I think that's true of a lot of our women. You can see they're all very determined and they kind of will go to any length to figure out how to get where they want to go. I love that. Yeah. Those are girls after my own heart. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So in 1896, she's 23 years old and she decides, you know what, I'm going to start my own firm. And she got her first jobs through family connections. But after a while, she was really busy designing gardens for various estates in the New England area. So we talked about this on this episode when we did it, but like, were either of you ready to start your own business when you were 23 years old? I wish I had, but I, I wouldn't have had the confidence to do it. Yeah. Uh, well, I've always been, I always moonlit, moonlighted, yeah. um, not architecture projects, but like I always was doing something on the side. So 23 me would say that's not really a business, but like 43, actually 42 me says like, you know, I was kind of being a little bit entrepreneurial. So in, in a way, maybe I did. Yeah. I still had to pay taxes. So I guess right. so. Mm. Yeah. But I think right? well, then, yeah, I agree with sure you, you that business. when you're 23, <laughs> though, you're thinking like, ah, oh, this isn't really like, you know, <laughs> or you're just legit. kind of figuring your way through the profession. So, right. I do wonder though, you know, to have the money to pay a faculty member to teach you how to draft, I'm wondering if she historically came from money. Oh, she did. So she saw that she got the entrepreneur spirit from her parents. Yes, you're very right. She actually, her, her family is like the phrase keeping up with the Joneses. That's her family. They're the Joneses. So. <laughs> They're literally the Joneses. Yes. So yeah, there's definitely some money there and there's, there's definitely some of that. And I mean, she was, you know, I think living in her family home and started the business out of her home and that kind of thing. So yeah, we talked a little bit about the privilege that she had Mm -hmm. too. Oh yeah. And I mean, that's true. I think of a lot of our ladies as well, because I think, yeah, they just, they had more ability and more privilege to be able to kind of go farther in a time where that was not very accepted. So, right. And that privilege also kind of, I think I would imagine instills a level of confidence too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just wouldn't have as well. Definitely. Well, in 1899, the American Society of Landscape Architects was formed and Beatrix was one of the 11 founding members and the only woman. She's considered the first female landscape architect in the U.S. And she's certainly someone who helped shape landscape architecture as a profession her practice and just kind of the structure of it was a model for other women and firms who followed after her. Other landscape architects like Ellen Biddle Shipman and Marion Kruger Kaufman, they would base their firms off of what Beatrix did. And I, I just, when I was looking into workplace cultural shifts, I remembered this and I was thinking like, well, if that isn't a cultural shift in the workplace, I don't really know what is, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she was the early model for other women to look to. Exactly. So she would go on to design many university campuses across the country. And she also designed the East and West Gardens of the White House in 1913. And Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, D.C. is one of her best known projects. It was a 53-acre project, and she created about 1,200 drawings and full-scale mock-ups for the clients to understand the various pieces of the design. Dang, that's a lot of work. Right? Especially at that time, because I feel that the drawings were so much more simple, right? Like, yeah. They didn't have the level of complexity that 
we do now right and well Sorry, and all by hand and just kind of yeah yeah, yeah. more yeah. time consuming yeah. it's funny because i remember you told us this story a while ago and i was like oh yeah i should check it out ha 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 but then now like hearing you talk about dumberton oaks i've actually been looking at that because one i didn't realize today of how popular it is as like a wedding venue my team at work is considering doing a staff retreat there so oh, really OMG. Yeah. oh wow yeah it's just yeah the gardens just... they'd be great you know yeah it's yeah i just i'm putting two and two together so <laughs> yes well you can check out episode six of our show to find out more about beatrix okay let's talk about louise bethune now okay so louise was called lulu by friends and family before you get started I have to say, this one's a big deal for AIA folk. Yeah. Very true. (laughs) There's a conference room named after her. There's a medal. But there's a medal, too. (laughs) With her face on it. Yeah. She's a big deal. She's a big deal. Yeah, she's VIP. Yeah. Well, Louise was called Lulu by friends and family, and she's considered to be the first female architect in the United States. She was born in 1856 in Waterloo, New York, upstate. And then she grew up in Buffalo. She always wanted to be an architect and she even got teased by a male classmate. And he told her, Lulu, girls can't be architects, which Mm. I mean, you know, that lit a fire under her and she was going to be an architect. So yeah, she was planning to study architecture at Cornell, but she started working as a draftsperson for an architect in Buffalo and decided to keep working and learn through that experience and access to their architectural library rather than going to school. She worked there for five years and then started her own firm at 25 years old, another early starter. And she actually married a coworker from her previous job, Robert Bethune. And not long after she opened the firm, the company became Bethune and Bethune. So The theme of our current season is partnerships and power couples and how that might have helped women in their profession or not. And we did a mini episode on the topic overall to kick off the season. So check out charrette number four to hear more. But one of the things that we discussed in that charrette is partnerships at the time of Louise were sort of a newer thing. Up until that point, architects were kind of like one man shows, you know, And so this shift to a partnership model allowed more women to be able to participate in the profession in a way that maybe was more socially acceptable. And it also meant their spouse understood the lifestyle and workload more acutely of architecture. And then another thing we kind of talked about is like, when you look at the name of the firm, it's really ambiguous as to whether it's two men or a man and a woman. Yeah. I mean, I can think of so many, even today, like dynamic duos out there that are married and that have thrived building their practice and their marriage and architecture. Yeah, exactly. I think it's become very common. And so like that shift to partnership models with firms was like a huge thing for women, I think. And Louise was very much a front facing member of their firm and she handled most of the design and the construction aspects. She specifically tried to take a variety of project types and tried not to be pigeonholed into 
residential projects because they were considered more domestic or female appropriate. And because of this, their range of work was really vast. They designed commercial buildings, industrial buildings, schools, public buildings, a church, and a prison. Nothing like a good challenge. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it kind of seemed like she would just kind of take any work that came their way, you know, and she just wanted to kind of do it all. And there was obviously some media attention around her and a biographer wrote about her saying, it was thought that a woman couldn't be an architect and supervise construction and wear a dress at the same time. And yeah, I mean, she was pushing the bounds of the workplace just by working in it, let alone working with her husband and in this new partnership style firm. Well, Louise designed many projects in the Buffalo and upstate New York area. And she also became the first female member of the AIA in 1888. And she was a strong advocate for women joining the architecture profession and for equal pay. You can listen to episode nine to learn more about Louise's life and career. What's really cool about this story is that as the first female member of the AIA, she is now being honored in the AIA through a award that you receive after you've served on the strategic council. It used to be that if you were on the national board of directors, and this still holds, but you would basically, once you completed your term, you would receive the Richard Upjohn fellow because Richard Upjohn was an early member of the AIA, distinguished fellow of the Institute. And once they created the strategic council, they created the equivalent of that through uh, the Bethune medal that you get. And so it's her face is on a medal and you get it when you're done serving on the strategic council. And I think it's pretty cool to see the AIA recognizing their first female member that way. Okay. So I'm also going to give you guys a sneak peek of a new lady who no one has heard yet. You're very special. Um, (laughs) the episode's out on March 28th, episode 48, and it's about Florence Knoll. So Florence was born in 1917 in Saginaw, Michigan. She studied architecture and eventually moved to New York City, where she worked at a few firms before meeting Hans Knoll, who had a furniture company. And like I mentioned before, our season's theme is partnerships and power couples. So similar to Louise, Florence and her husband, Hans, ran this furniture company together. And it became one of the most well-known corporate furniture and interior design companies of the 20th century. And Florence was pretty much in charge of anything creative with the company. We're talking about division of labor in a company, and she was doing a lot. But one of the most mind-blowing things that I learned about when researching her was that She's the reason that we have sample swatches, you know, like that companies have this, interior design firms have this, and also material boards. She was really the first one who was doing that, like putting actual materials onto plans and renderings so that clients would better understand the look and feel of a space. And things that are just so standard in the industry now are because of her. And I just, again, definitely made me think of workplace cultural shifts and how she was pushing forward the profession and better understanding how to communicate with clients 
through these techniques. I'm really fascinated. Like when you all do this research to understand your architects, you're able to pull up that level of historical knowledge. That's so amazing. The internet's a beautiful place. Yeah. <laughs> Google's our friend. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, luckily we're, you know, we're pulling from resources that other people have researched very thoroughly. And thankfully we get to use those like, you know, books written about these women and things like that. But yeah, it's amazing what you can find and that we just, that we don't know about, you know? I didn't realize that she was the one that did swatches, but I always noticed how actually in Noel showrooms the textiles and the swatches are actually displayed pretty prominently so yeah that's really interesting Mm -hmm. yeah it's all thanks to her well you can tune in on march 28th to she builds podcast to learn more about florence there's a lot more to the story there's just so much more to the story there's a lot (laughs) that's right okay last but not least act three disrupting education and using podcasting as a tool And we have none other than Jessica. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited to complete the trio of us she builders being on your show. It's like a three course meal. You get a little taste of everything, so that everybody knows why they need to head over to she builds and your dessert, Jessica. Yeah, I was gonna say that means that I'm the sweetness. Hey, (laughs) you are cool. I love it. Okay, for my act. I wanted to switch it up a little bit. Just, you know, look at it more big picture, perhaps. You know, on our show, we've talked about, we've talked about how women, you know, they represent these different cultures, how their resiliency has impacted the workplace and to things that are still evident today. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about how these women have impacted our architectural education system. So I'm going to use this example. So I'm going to ask you a question, actually. Evelyn, Janine, while in college, did you guys study abroad? Simple question. I did. I did, too. Where'd you guys go? So I went to Greece. Okay. Um, Oh, that's a good place. Mm -hmm. A Drury University, small liberal arts school in Springfield, Missouri, actually requires every student that matriculates through Hammond School of Architecture to do a study Mm -hmm. abroad for graduation. There you go. And I got to go to Rome for the summer, which was amazing. And what school did you go to? UNC Charlotte. Okay. Okay. I was was going to lead me to another thing, but okay, we're not there yet. Okay. So Evelyn, you mentioned that it was within the curriculum and For the both of you, I guess, it was a part of our curriculum too, to study abroad. Like we went to Florence, but we had options to go to other uh, programs. But I guess, what are your thoughts on the idea of studying abroad with an architectural curriculum? Like some see it as a requirement, some like as a a participant, it's like, oh, well, yeah, it's a must. Some people, they might not have the opportunity, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on it? I think it's really important, honestly. Especially coming from North Carolina. And I think the opportunity to take people who may have never been outside of their hometown or another state or another community Mm -hmm. into a completely different culture abroad is so powerful. You get to experience life in a way that's so beyond your ability to comprehend that you, you just start to understand that the 
people see the world in so many different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's even more important when we talk about, you know, kind of equity, diversity, and inclusion, right? You talk about how all of these different perspectives really contribute differently to a beautiful whole, but you don't really fully understand that until you step into an entirely different culture mm-hmm. to understand how truly different the perspectives are. I will say the other thing that was really powerful for me is having grown up on the East Coast with historic preservation and mm-hmm. like a major part of my childhood is, was going to DC and Charleston and yeah. all these historic sites on the East Coast. But going to Rome and and seeing buildings that were the length of history that those buildings had existed is so much greater than any structure in the United States that it just, it was amazing just to know that like ground level in Rome is above where the city used to be. Like you would have to like dig down and excavate and you can actually see parts of the city where it drops down Mm -hmm. and it exposes the older parts of Rome. It's just, it's incredible. Yes. So I I just always think it's so interesting as architects and how and designers how important it is and I never really thought of the beginnings of that. So the lady that I want to mention from our show is Astra Zarina. She is originally from Latvia. She is I'm going to I'm not going to go too um detailed into her story because I want you guys to listen to episode 39 and it gives you a little bit of nostalgia of your time studying abroad because Astra Zarina she started the Rome program at the University of Washington so Janine that's why I asked because I wanted to I like for a second there you said Rome and I thought you were going to say University of Washington and I was like whoa 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 hold the phone you might have met this woman because she you know she's she's one of our more recent ladies but Oh, nice. Uh, um, but to your point, though, on our show, we love quotes. There's something about having these quotes from our women that kind of makes us learn more about them in another way, in a special way. It also gives us an opportunity to reflect a little bit on the themes that we see um, within our show. So going back to Astra, and it actually ties in perfectly to some of the comments that the both of you made, is you know, when she's starting this program in Rome and seeing how her students are um, taking to the city and why she advocated so much for a study abroad program is that, yes, they're learning language and culture and all of these things, but also seeing the city as an artifact of history. So it's exactly to the same point that you make, Janine. And another quote that tied to that is also just learning how architecture and cities are expressions of the cultures that produce them. So it takes that human aspect of um, design as well. So I thought that was, it's, it's just one example of how, I mean, I'm not going to say that Astra disrupted education, but maybe she did by introducing this concept of not just learning classical architecture from a book or drawing or copying drawings, but actually exploring within a city, taking the architect into the city to learn about architecture in a much more tangible way. So in a way, she was like a disruptor, as what you guys would call it. We usually call them just trailblazing pioneer women, but for the purpose of this show, we're going to call them disruptors as well. 
this actually leads to the next lady that I wanted to talk about, who is also an educator. She was part of our educator theme. And I mean, Amaza Lee Meredith, she started the art department at Virginia State College. She is this like African-American woman that did it. But actually to your point, I mean, yes, I was going to talk about how this art department still exists today, but what she's also known for is that she's an educator and an architect because she did the Azurist South and the Azurist North. There are these two communities. Uh, one is in Virginia and one is in Sag Harbor. Sag Harbor. I know it today as this bougie place that I probably can't afford to live in the Hamptons of New York, but it was actually like this like black community for like the rich affluent black folks to live and vacation in New York. So it's just interesting how you wouldn't think about that today. Now today people are now recognizing it and seeing this Azurus community as a place that needs to be preserved. But it's that story that now is being told, but it wasn't at a large audience as it was before. So these are the stories that we we like to tell that it's stories that don't typically get told. And it just, it, it makes me wonder as, you know, when we talk about disruption, we talk about all of these things of workplace culture and identity, but it's also just education at large, just of what we're learning and then how we're learning and who are we learning it from. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that like, uh, we talked about all these like Cobusier and how he stole things and how like we hear his name get like shoved down our throats all this time while we're in school, but we don't hear the story of Manette da Silva and Jane Drew that if it wasn't for Jane Drew, Shandigar wouldn't have happened. And then I think of how they're just not telling the whole story. Okay, we all know Zaha, right? Zaha Hadid. And at least for me, I remember learning about her work about the Rosenthal Center for Contemporary Art Museum in Cincinnati. Does that name ring a bell? At least the, it's like one of her first projects in the United States. Does that, yeah. does that, you guys remember that one? It's kind of cool. It's got mm -hmm. like floating boxes and stuff. It's but very what, cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we're fans. But <laughs> what the part that they didn't tell you in school, at least they didn't tell me, they didn't tell us, that with that building, Zaha would be the first woman to design a museum in America. This wow. Iraqi British woman to be the first woman, just woman in general, to design a museum in America. Oh, and that was wow. not that long ago. Like, exactly. Right. That's what shocked yeah. me. <laughs> like, I can't believe it. Yeah, because there were firms that apply, like she beat out SOM, she beat out all these big name firms that I'm sure probably had women partners and principals, but a woman named Face on the door. A, on the door. Mm -hmm. And then I think about the history. So like, I, I, I remember like when we learned about Zaha, it was towards the end of our architectural history course, right? Because we're getting more to the now, but going back to the back, <laughs> to the previous, to the historical part, like I, I talk about Le Corbusier too much of how much I, I don't like him as the architect or I, I don't like him as a person. And I talk <laughs> about Frank Lloyd, we talk about Frank Lloyd Wright and we talk about Mies van der Rohe and they're behind these like iconic buildings. But what we've learned on our show is that there's also women like Lily Reich, like Jane Drew, Mary Mahoney Griffin, Eileen Gray. And actually these were the women, these were the people that actually were behind most of those iconic places. So if it wasn't for Lily, 
Marion, Eileen, or Jane, these projects, they just, they wouldn't happen. Marion was the, she did the renderings for all of, most of Frank Lloyd Wright's projects. Renderings are the money makers. They're the money shots. They're the ones that win projects. They are the existing drawings that get left besides photographs and whatever. And then, so it's just, I don't know, it got me thinking about like when we have those conversations of diversity and inclusion and equity, and we think about how important representation matters. And I'm sitting in this classroom learning about this old white man that did this thing and how like I'm just learning about the projects and like the projects are cool, but like how much more would I feel uplifted or inspired to like with like be within this profession if I knew that it was actually a woman or a woman that looks like me that actually made these projects happen or at least was involved like Barcelona it makes me want to go look at the all the authors of our history books though right like it's a (laughs) it's a much it's a much deeper oh yeah yeah conversation about um why the stories are written the way they are written right yeah yeah that's true and it goes back to your comment about like the IMDb thing, Evelyn, I feel like too, yes. because it's, yeah, it, it goes back to that idea of the architect and like kind of giving one person credit for everything, mm-hmm. right? One of the things that I really appreciate about your show, you know, my, I don't remember my architectural history class being that exciting. And mm-hmm. I would say what I do remember is that they spent a lot of time talking about the buildings, mm-hmm. the buildings themselves, the sites, design constraints, the Mm -hmm. decision-making that went in to prompt the design. But what I don't remember hearing about was the people. And so in addition to the fact that you're bringing forward women in architecture who have built work in Mm -hmm. communities all over the world, you're also talking about the people behind these buildings, which I find really valuable and powerful. To me, I care as much, if not more, about the people who put these designs together as I do about the building, because as we've demonstrated in the stories today that you've shared, what matters to those individuals really drives how they think about design. And that Mm -hmm. to me is what makes design really interesting. Yeah. I mean, our goal, and I guess the, one of the roots of our show is that it's through the power of storytelling. We want to inspire a more equitable, diverse, and inclusive profession. So telling these women's stories through this approach, we just want to tell a story that inspires women and others to create a profession that's more inclusive, yes, but also those that are within it those students that are stuck in studio right now contemplating what they want or like is what they're doing worth it at the end by telling the stories of the hardship and the struggles that our women have to do will help keep them propel forward you know we tell a lot of stories of the women when they become licensed and the the trouble that they had just to get into school or just to get into whatever program but to see them make it and then become these powerful women behind these iconic projects yes they might not have gotten their their store their flowers when they had the chance to smell it but through our show they will hear their stories will get told and you know it it just through podcasting I guess podcasting is our medium to do that because we want it to be approachable we want it to be something 
that you could just have in the background um, on our show. It's like we're three friends just telling stories about these amazing women. You know, it's it's our way of disrupting these like old stories that have been told for however many years about these old men. But now nah, we're going to switch it up. We're going to tell the whole story, the true story of the women behind it. And, you know, it's casual. We're not historians, but, you know, we just we just tell stories of people that of women that we think are cool. I think you guys are historians. I think you're modern historians. Like you put mm-hmm. a modern spin on it. What we do though is we always like I think it was one of our like if you think of like a pillar for our show is that we always thought of our show as kind of like this springboard or like this jumping off point for others to do research as well. So that if they hear our story on Zaha Hadid or on Florence Knoll, they'll be like, huh, I never thought of that. Let me go and research more. So on our show notes, we always make sure to have, like we have a bibliography on all of our our ladies because we want others to do their own research as well. And also just thinking of it as like a student standpoint, like if I'm doing an episode on Chandigarh and all I hear is Le Corbusier, but then I find out that Jane Drew was a part of it, it's like, hold up. I need to know more. And I'm sure their libraries might not have the full story on it, which is a whole other discussion, but they can use our show notes and then they'll see that there's way more to the story of Chandigarh than just Corbusier. Yeah. Well, I think it's awesome what you guys are doing. And I know that if I had had this when I was a student, I would have been really much more excited to write my research paper about Mm -hmm. probably a different architect than who I ended up writing about. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) Also, I know that you're inspiring um, the next generation and architects at all stages in their career to really like think about the stories, even in their own communities, about architects that they see and may not even recognize as as having been women on these projects. Yeah. We're thrilled (laughs) that you're doing this work. So I think we're going to land on one final question, which we do with all of our podcast episodes this season and we'll go around robin and give you each a chance to respond what mic drop moment what (laughs) is one one just one idea or lesson on change needed in the practice of architecture that you'd like to pass forward to the architects emerging professionals and industry disruptors listening everything we've been talking about sharing these stories like changing the way we teach architecture and who we talk about and how we talk about the projects and who we include. I wish that would change. And I hope that together we're, we're creating that change. I think one main idea, I, I tell this a lot when I speak to students, because um, it's been something that has always been prevalent in my career, but for to disrupt or an industry disruptor or to disrupt the practice of architecture, if you will. My biggest thing is don't accept the status quo. Like just, if there's something that you don't like, just change it. Uh, it. I know that it's easier said than done, but there's a lot of ways that you can do it. So like for us, I'm not saying I didn't like my architecture education, but I saw the gaps. We saw the gaps. So through our podcast, we're filling in those gaps. And that's how we're disrupting architectural education I don't, in our own little podcast, with our own little podcast. That's 
that's how you do it. Just one disruption at a time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think similarly to that, or just, I don't know, in general, kind of for young professionals being more assertive and like similar to what Jessica was saying about the status quo, but just kind of, you know, asking for what you need in terms of like Mm. what, you know, if it's to learn more or, you know, like if you can sit in on a meeting so that you can like better understand what's going on or like you need certain things for your license because that's important to you. Or, you know, I think a lot of times we just, and especially as women, it feels like we're not supposed to ask for things unless like the opportunity is presented. And so I think, you know, asking for what you need and being more assertive is kind of the idea that I would say, just because I think otherwise the profession won't change and like your boss isn't going to know that that's what you need. And so he'll just keep on doing what he's doing. You know, they are doing could be a woman. Mm-hmm. Thank you to NCARB for their support of this podcast episode. Visit ncarb.org slash AOP, that's N-C-A-R-B dot O-R-G slash A-O-P, and contribute to the analysis of practice survey today. Thank you to ArcIT for their support of this episode. Don't forget to visit getarcit.com slash PD to set up your free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment or custom solutions for your design firm. Thank you again to our podcast partner, Monograph. Learn how Monograph can help you take control of your firm's financial health. Follow the link in our show notes or visit practiceofarchitecture.com backslash monograph so that Monograph knows that you heard about them from us. Hi, Disruptors. If you like the content from today's show, you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast. Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers, and others in our community at practiceofarchitecture.com slash community. Our social media handle is at practiceofarch. That's at practiceofarch. We love to hear from you. Drop us a note to say hello. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.